This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 of your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the Tracking Board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about adapting material to TV. What makes something an adaptation and what are some tips for your own projects? Let's find out. And welcome back to our Paper Scraps segment. This week we're going to be covering a couple of little things. First and foremost, we wanted to just let you guys know about the Tracking Board Pilot Competition that is coming up 2018. It's open this month, November, and it's a good opportunity to really get your work out there and seen. We've already talked a little bit about that specific competition in our TV writing competitions 101 episode a while back, as well as the TV writing competition, where are they now? What happens after you win sort of interview episode that we did later on. So I definitely recommend, even from my own experience, entering it, finding a mentor through it. I thought it was really useful. And also you'd be helping us a little bit by using the code paper team. Being someone who works on the other side of that, my boss, who is a literary manager, has found a number of writers through the competition, through the winners, things like that. It really does help. So we personally recommend it regardless of any level of sponsorship. Four thumbs up. <laughs> Another thing we wanted to mention is if you go on TV Calling, my website, TV Calling, tv-calling.com, uh, you'll find on the right side of the website a little widget called Leave a Voicemail. And as the name sounds, it's essentially a little tool for you guys to leave us a voicemail up to 90 seconds and you can ask us whatever you want i mean if you want to troll us then fine but uh we, <laughs> we would love to hear your tv or any questions and we can use them on the podcast now i will preface this by saying that actually what's the opposite of preface uh post, post, post face. face i will post face what i just said by um post script i guess by post <laughs> I will PS this whole entire bit by saying that this little widget is temporary. We're going to try this out until probably the end of the year and see if people actually use it to begin with. Uh, and obviously, if nobody uses it, we're going to remove it. Uh, at least I'm going to remove it from TV Calling. But until then, it's definitely free to use. You can use it on your phone, actually, iOS, Android, whatever it works. You don't have to plug in a mic on your computer. You can literally go on the website on your phone, tap the button, and record that message and you'll be done. If you're really afraid of what you're saying, like I am on this podcast, you can also reset what you just said in case you want to delete what you just said uh, and you said nasty things about us. Um, <laughs> yeah, but if you do want to ask us a question on the podcast, we could actually put the recording of your voice on air asking the question if you wanted as well. So that would be cool. Yeah, you can, you can become a very, very minor celebrity <laughs> <laughs> by this very, very minor uh, voice celebrity recognized by like, maybe like five people in the entire universe. Oh, yeah. But when you do, it'll be good. <laughs> uh, and the last thing we want to just go over quickly is that the, the Fox Writers Intensive or Fox Writers Lab is now closed. <laughs> it almost made it to the full, uh, the 22nd, I think it was, the date that it closed. The deadline, it, yeah. It, it almost made it to the deadline. Hours I think away. It was, I think it was like hours beforehand, it hit the cap of 750 people. We weren't sure if it was going to happen. I think people were rushing to get it in in the first couple of days, thinking, oh my God, this is going to close so quick. But And then maybe people got complacent because it managed to pull all the way through to like couple hours beforehand like oh, i'll have plenty of time they uploaded their stuff heard about multiple people who were all ready to go they were just proofreading ready to hit that button and boom it was locked out because we hit 750 so yeah i mean same i'm, I'm kind of wondering I, I would love to see that curve of number of entries and what's the percentage of people that entered within that first 48 hour window versus the last 48 hours comparatively to the rest of the whatever a month open application online and really i mean we've said it on, like when we discussed this competition last time the 700 or however many limited entries in a competition doesn't really make sense at least to me just because they're only asking a few pages of that pilot script so really what are they looking for in those limited entries that you cannot open for everybody else i mean the sentence episodic lab i don't 
No, if they have a limit. I mean, they, they have a limit in terms of page count, but they don't have a limit in terms of entries. I think the same thing happened with the HBO one as well, which is only every two years or something. They put a particular number limit on it. And the thing to me that doesn't make sense about that is that ostensibly these competitions and these, these workshops are about diversity and about finding most interesting voices and unique perspectives and things like that. And if you are arbitrarily or artificially putting a limit on the amount of people that can enter that, then you are in some way limiting the extent of the diversity or the candidates that you can get because maybe let's say you've got someone who's disadvantaged from that kind of background and they have to work two jobs and they don't have the time to get, get all this stuff put together and then they finally were about to submit and you've cut them off because the people who are being supported by their parents and are from a privileged wealthy background or something already had the day to go and put everything away so there's just like certain things there that don't quite add up to me about that rule. Absolutely. And, and I think it is the double whammy of access to that entry form as well as just what they're asking for in the first place. I mean, again, if you're only asking for a couple of pages, seven pages, I think was the, the, mm -hmm. the Fox not limit. Not even the first 10, it's seven not pages. Not even the first, I mean, it's not even like a fifth of a one hour drama. It's kind of ridiculous to ask for that amount and yet still limit the number of yeah, participants. If they're reading full scripts, I would understand putting a limit on that. You only have so much time and resources and money you can devote to these things. But if it's seven pages, surely you can get through another 50, 100 of those. You know what? Maybe we should create our own one page limit and you only have 30 seconds to enter a competition. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be randomly generated page between this release of this podcast and 50 years from now. Uh, randomly at some point in time, there's going to be a website we can submit for one second, oh, uh, one page. And we're definitely not going to read it. So. Uh -huh. But if there are any takeaways from that, I guess, don't wait until the last minute to submit things. Like that's how yeah. the whole deadline system preys on people is it costs more money for later deadlines. So you leave it off and you end up paying more money. Like just finish your stuff on time. Set your own deadlines. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I don't believe they were asking for money for this particular competition. So I can understand at that level. But it is true that if you were to spend money on that kind of uh, contest, then it would make sense. I mean, it, it's just really strange to me that they sort of impose that artificial deadline in terms of the number of entries oh well whatever it's always next year i guess <laughs> now i'm gonna cry <laughs> next year they will take the first 15 people to reply with the first three and a half pages of their script <laughs> and then the year after that they're just gonna read the first slug line and uh and that's it <laughs> they're actually just gonna open their window and shout out and anyone on the street that comes in in time in two minutes who makes it to their office will get the fellowship Fox is going to turn into a Comic-Con where people are just going to camp outside <laughs> to wait for the person to uh, cry it out. Maybe. Anyway, on with the episode. All right, let's talk about adaptation. First of all, Nick, can you tell us what constitutes an adaptation? Well, there are two broad categories of an adaptation, and you'll see this in credits of a film or things like that. There's inspired by real events versus based on a true story. So while there aren't strict legal definitions for what each of these things mean, in general, based on implies that you can point to a source of information or story that you have the right to use, whether through acquiring the IP or through public domain, and you can use the same character names and plot points and structure and themes, etc. from that story while still having you know some freedom to present and execute it how you wish. So that's when something is based on an actual piece of material, as opposed to something being inspired by which is a much more loosely defined thing that is just, I could be walking down the street and see something happen, and I'm inspired to go off and write something with vaguely similar elements, but I'm not using the names of the real people, things like that. And these are all about true elements in real life, not adapted IP, right? Which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Exactly, yeah. So to, to clarify, we're just talking about the stuff that is mainly based on in this episode, adapting from a specific source. If you want more information on things that are perhaps inspired by, you can check out our episode PT58, Inspiration versus Stealing. It's in the name. Some more specific examples of that, The Wolf of Wall Street was based on the life of Jordan Belfort, and Leonardo DiCaprio's character is called Jordan Belfort. So while every scene and conversation in that movie may not have really happened, largely the events track with the events and outcomes in Jordan Belfort real life. Whereas the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko was never a real person. He was perhaps loosely inspired by a number of different financiers around that time, but the events of the movie were created from scratch, even though they might be the kind of things that those people might have done. It is worth pointing out that this whole inspired by based on true event thing isn't really 
accredited or governed by unions since they're kind of ambiguous enough statements that you're making. You're not really making any specific claim to begin with. And the fact is, as Nick just brought up with the Wolf of Wall Street versus the movie Wall Street, is if you do end up changing the details like characters, location, etc., sufficiently enough that no one can realistically tell who or what you base your story on, then you're probably in the clear. Now, this is not legal advice, but the rule of thumb that I have heard is that any story you can find from at least two or three independent separate sources, in that case, you should be able to use without getting the rights. If your script is essentially based off of multiple different sources, then you're ultimately adapting an event that happened on the macro scale, not so much a specific narrative or angle. And this is different than adapting a piece of history from a specific point of view of an existing person who may have a biography written about him or her. And in that case, you're adapting that event in history from that person's vantage point and very likely getting all your information from that one singular source. And think about what studios are buying. I mean, studios don't just option pitches and books. They can also transform articles into narrative content. Spotlight is such an example. And the entire narrative of that movie is based on the investigation of these journalists about that specific subject. The topic in itself isn't really copyrighted, but the specific take on it is and all that again is about historical or real life examples but what about existing ips or existing stories nick yeah i mean if you look at any of the romeo and juliet films made in recent years they are obviously based on the story of romeo and juliet written by william shakespeare the story is the same the characters are the the same however if you look at maybe west side story that's much more of an inspired by situation where the setting the characters the content have been fairly heavily changed and put in a new light and a new take. Now, let's say uh, I'm making a story, a script, uh, something that's based on real life people. How should I approach that? So here we get into the issue of life rights and the right to publicity. So if you're basing your story off of the life of a real person, you will usually need their permission to do so, which involves purchasing the rights to their life story. Now, those are actually a bundle of smaller rights, such as protection from being sued for defamation, invasion of privacy, the right to publicity, as I said, and even access to the subject and their friends and family, the ability to use private information in diaries, photos, etc. There are some instances in which you don't have to acquire these rights. For example, if it's a figure of public interest, like a well-known celebrity or public servant like the president, or maybe even a well-known serial killer or criminal, you are allowed to depict and tell stories about such people because they're seen to have more or less waived their right to publicity by the nature of their life being in the public eye through their professions or their actions. That said, you can't just make things up about them. They still have the right to sue you for defamation or libel. So if you suggest that President Obama eats babies in his spare time, uh, <laughs> you might get in trouble. You can only use information that is publicly accessible and verifiable. Facts, not conjecture. Otherwise, you're opening yourself up to that. You know, these are things that are on the public record, events that everyone knows happened, like his inauguration. Uh, if you write a scene in a back room of the White House where he orders a drone strike on a school of children, if you can't prove that happened, you're probably opening yourself up to be sued. Hence, the benefit of purchasing these life rights to A, gain access to the insider information that you can depict, and B, protect yourself from being sued for making false representations. Public figures do have a slightly higher burden of proof to sue you for defamation than a private individual. They have to prove that you've deliberately intended to spread a lie or you showed a reckless disregard for what might have been the truth. But it's still not really a risk you want to take. And if you're looking for studios and financiers to come in and make this, they're not going to finance something with that much legal and financial risk attached to it. It should be noted that the examples that you mentioned are within the context of something that is to be taken seriously. I mean, you brought up Obama. I know that the ending of the movie Kingsman sort of explodes Obama's head and kills him and they do arrange things to the character and they depict him in a certain way but all this is under the guise of parody or humor it's not really meant to be actual factual news i think something like w the oliver stone movie could be misconstrued as being a straight bio versus just kind of like this weird satire that he occasionally does yeah there are certain protections built in to do with comedy and parody and satire which i'm actually going to discuss a little bit later but Getting back to individuals and representing their likenesses and their stories on screen, if that person is already dead, their ability to sue for defamation and invasion of privacy ceases to exist when they die. It doesn't pass on to their estate, so they can't sue you on their behalf. However, where it gets tricky is that individuals may still have a right to privacy, especially if they were a private citizen and not a public figure, and their estate may actually still be able to enforce this after their death, depending on the state laws. Even some public figures, such as Elvis, they've successfully been able to control who can use his image and in what way, probably partially because they have so much power and clout and money to do so. 
But when in doubt, get the rights. And if you can't, you probably shouldn't waste your time writing about it because financiers and other people won't really touch it. There are also nuances in terms of the historical adaptations and events on the macro scale. I mean, compare the HBO series Rome and Ben of Brothers. Both are about these epic true war stories. Both feature existing historical characters and both are dramatized events based on existing books. But if you look at what is actually being adapted, only one of those shows is truly based on something else in the legal sense. Bender Brothers is an actual adaptation of a Stephen Ambrose 92 nonfiction book of the same name. It uses the same characters, the same jumping off point, the same perspective. Obviously, the series took literally license to adapt history for dramatic effect, but the characters are the same members of the Easy Company. In fact, the entire miniseries was framed around recorded contemporary interviews featuring those soldiers. Now, Rome, on the other hand, has a much more sprawling cast of characters, almost all of them real historical figures like Julius Caesar or Cleopatra. Now, you may tell me that the two real leads of Rome are in fact not historical characters. They're two random common soldiers played by Kevin McKitt and Ray Stevenson. And that is true, but these men are actually also based on or inspired by real Roman soldiers mentioned in Caesar's first-hand account of the Gallic Wars, a historical record. And that is where the distinction lies between a historical adaptation like Band of Brothers and one like Rome, the historical record. This goes back to what I said before about adapting something from different perspectives versus a singular source. Think about where your information and narrative are coming from. Are you inventing those details? Are you getting specific anecdotes from just one book? Are you writing the story from the same narrative vantage point as a news article? Or are you simply using four or five different sources to use as a jumping off point and educate yourself about that world? I mean, that is the real key to adapting history. All right, now let's look at each type of adaptation as well as some tips to use in your own writing. So before we delve deeper into that, I just want to briefly discuss choosing a format to adapt to. Now, obviously, this is a TV podcast, so we're largely going to be discussing the unique challenges of adapting an existing story to a television pilot and set that up for an ongoing series. However, it's worth noting that that may not always be the best choice for your story. If it's something that's a close-ended narrative with a defined character change from beginning to end, it might be better suited to being a feature or perhaps a limited series or an anthology. So when you're looking at IP for television, you want to find stories that have the ability to either continue beyond the scope of what's there, if it's a shorter anecdote like a New Yorker article or something, and extrapolate from that, or else if it's something more like a sprawling narrative, like the Song of Ice and Fire series of novels that became Game of Thrones, able to sustain for many, many seasons of TV. As we always say on the podcast, TV is a character's medium, so if you can find fascinating and engaging characters in those existing IPs, you can drop them into any story and situation you wish, and there will be something there. You know, the show Justified on FX worked so well because of the character of Raylan Givens from the Elmore Leonard novels. After six seasons, they had almost certainly used up all of the stories from the source material of two novels, even if they used them in the first place, but they were able to generate more from this fertile character and his rogues gallery of friends and foes. An interesting example of that is the ABC show Revenge, and Revenge is actually a retelling of Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. I know Nick really wanted to hear me uh, <laughs> speak some French, so Alexandre Dumas. Alexander Damas. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> we gotta have to bleep that. Uh, now, uh, in Count of Monte Cristo, the young Edmond Dante uh, is betrayed by a small group of friends and framed for treason, a crime he did not commit. And in Revenge, David Clark is also charged with a similar crime by having financed a terrorist organization. And both men are sentenced to life imprisonment with no chance of parole. Now, that's the setup both stories, but let's look at the parallels beyond just that basic premise. On one hand, you have Edmond Dantes, who ends up confined on an island prison, where he meets another inmate who takes him under his wing to train him in the art of fighting. And on Revenge, you have Amanda Clark, who is both the lead and the daughter of David Clark, who delays her quest for revenge by becoming an expert in martial combat. But the real meat of the story is when both of these characters come back under different aliases. Edmond Dant successfully escapes prison, finds a lost treasure that belonged to his prison mentor, and transforms himself into the Count of Monte Cristo. And he's able to con his way back into the world of those responsible for his incarceration and enacts that revenge. And in very similar ways, Amanda Clark returns to her childhood town, infiltrating under a different identity the same people who framed her dad all these years ago. Now, clearly, you have very overt similarities between the two stories when you put them side by side. And yet, Revenge isn't considered to be a clear adaptation of Count of Monte Cristo. In fact, 
I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will have just realized those similarities. And so that is an example of a show that was inspired by a product or another IP, but really didn't need to show off that existing IP to be sellable. I mean, if you look at the pilot script of Revenge or the title page of Revenge, you're not going to see based on Count Monte Cristo. Maybe they pitched it in the room, but in terms of sellability, the marketing, you know, when you were looking at ABC trailers, it wasn't based on this awesome French story from like the 18th century. Like it was completely different separate entity exactly in the same way like sons of anarchy is fairly loosely inspired by hamlet because of all the dynamics in the family and all the the death and the tragedy and things like that but i don't think anyone was ever like coming soon to amc or (laughs) uh, (laughs) hamlet by kurt sutter starring motorbikes you know like (laughs) i mean that's an interesting sort of like intellectual exercise really is the, the number of shows that have based or have marketing themselves based on those kind of old-timey stories versus something that's contemporary, you know, like a remake of this specific show has a lot of marketing ability. But if you brand it as, you know, revamped Othello, how many people are going to be excited about that? Yeah, usually it's the more contemporary IPs that people are still excited about that they're going to be advertising, like The Walking Dead. (laughs) Which is going to run into the ground forever, I think. (laughs) First kind of adaptation we'll go into some depth on is historical adaptations. Tell us a little bit about that, Axe. Well, from my own experience, I mean, uh, one of my sort of biggest endeavors in terms of spec pilots is this little script that I wrote called Eagle Sun that is a one-hour drama taking place during the American occupation of Japan after World War II. Now, I won't go into too much detail about the script and the story because I brought it up multiple times before. Are there sexy teens? Clearly, World War II plus (laughs) Japan plus occupation. Clearly, it's CW. Next year, CW, Eagle Sun. CWW2. (laughs) That's going to be the new tagline. (laughs) Now, with all that said, I did want to walk you guys through sort of my research process for this particular historical pilot. I mean, what did I read? What was I looking for? Well, first off, I kind of started by reading any and all of the temple reference books that I could get my hands on regarding this period. And for me, that meant at least three volumes, including a book which had won a Pulitzer. It's kind of this reference book that a lot of people respect. Reading those tomes gave me a broad overview and frame of reference for the entire period, but it didn't really give me any specific information concerning the historical players at that time. And I obviously knew who was what and what they did on a historical level, but there was no insight into who they were as people. So then I turned to reading bios of these historical characters. But then again, I realized that what I was reading was heavily biased. For example, the biography I was reading about General MacArthur was written by his wife. So clearly not the best objective source. But here's the thing. History records are often biased, especially when you're researching topics or people who are glorified one way or the other. And so I went on to read the bios of a few other people who had completely different experiences and perspectives on those other historical characters. If anyone's ever taken a history class, that's one of the main things that you get taught is looking at multiple sources and then analyzing what kind of political stance those sources had and whether their writing might be biased and trying to find some sort of more objective narrative through the combination of those things. Absolutely. And and that's the thing is after all that research and reading and processing, the thing is I knew very well the macro world and sort of the characters and the historical events. But despite sort of the knowledge of these events and maybe a semi-objective perspective on everything, my pilot wasn't really taking place over a decade, right? It was just taking place over a few days. So I had to really dig in and figure out the specificities that took place at that point in time. And whether or not you're going to use all those little minutiae in your script is irrelevant because this is about learning and researching, especially at that phase. I do have one major caveat about research, and that is don't spend all your time researching. I just talked about reading dozens of books, but I was still working on my script during that time. I was still figuring out my outline, my characters, and the overall story while I was reading and ingesting what I was reading. And I can process and internalize the information in my logical side of the brain while still nourishing my creative side and generating story ideas for the pilot. And so you kind of need to have that balance. Otherwise, you're just going to procrastinate yourself to death. Yeah, that's such a huge trap to fall into. It's like, well, I can't write anything until I've already read these 12 biographies about these people. What if I write the wrong thing and I don't understand it? Speaking of that, 
how do you strike that balance between staying true to history? Like how important is it to be historically accurate when you're creating a story within that world? That was one of my biggest struggles writing the pilot was, as you pointed out, the sort of the balance between staying true to what actually happened, but also telling a compelling narrative driven by my characters. So what should I stay true to? If you veer off too far from what happened at the time and kind of take too many liberties with the material, then you lose any sense of authenticity. You may as well write fiction instead of something taking place with real historical figures. But I mean, if you're just recreating beat for beat, everything that happened with no narrative drive, you're just recreating literally what happened moment by moment, then you might as well send that script to a forensic case file on A&E. Boring. Um, boring. <laughs> hard pass. And that is the very fine line you have to tread. Now, I will say this. Here's sort of the solution that I figured out in that process. And that is that during my writing, I stayed true to the emotional truth behind what happened. What you are writing is not a documentary. It's a story. So if you've done your research, if you believe in that world, and if you know your characters inside out, then you should know what is emotionally authentic, even within the constraints of some tentpole historical events. You're interpreting the original content before rendering it on screen. You are already exploring and sharing your own version of that historical event or existing content. And that is what I mean by emotional truth. You probably have, and in fact, you should have some immovable historical events that you want in your script, in your pilot. But every historical minutia is not necessary to your story. Trying to shoehorn literal moments only works if what we're seeing is believable in the first place. And if you're worried about whether or not to include a specific little factoid, don't include it and see if anybody notices in the first place. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that whole perspective thing. Even when you're writing your own original worlds, you have a, a very clear understanding of everything that's going on in your head and you think that certain things are important and someone comes in from the outside and they look at it and like, oh, I didn't need to know that or that or, hey, I don't know anything about this. So it's getting that those two different perspectives on your writing and the piece. Yeah, I think the line is essentially to get enough across that people understand the world and then the next level is really creating this compelling narrative with these compelling characters, with these compelling goals and so on instead of being boggled by, oh, let's uh, figure out what this office looks like down to the table and uh, mm -hmm. the wood or whatever. Now, as a comedy writer for TV, we're not as often delving into these historical places. Maybe if you're doing like a time travel comedy or something like the <laughs> one that was on Fox, but there are elements that we have of reference to existing things. And those are really through satire and parody. Now, while these are not adaptation in the strictest sense, it is a very common technique to use an existing story or character or property in order to make fun of it. And these are feature examples, but look at all the scary movie, not another teen movie, epic movie, and all their predecessors, the David Zucker films, Naked Gun, Airplane, Top Secret. The entire spoof genre operates essentially on no new story. It's merely an endless string of references and jokes to other movies and other stories in that genre. We also see this in TV with The Simpsons, although they they have their own storylines happening while they make those references. But The Simpsons was kind of the originator of referential comedy back in the day. And since then, you know, people like South Park and Family Guy have picked up that torch and carried it. These are all very direct references to, in many cases, copyrighted material. But because it's being done to make fun of those familiar stories and those tropes, it kind of gets a free pass in the legal department because free speech laws protect our right to criticize, comment on, and make fun of things in this way. But for more extended examples in TV, look at something like the Orville for sci-fi or feature version of that might be Galaxy Quest or say like Austin Powers or Archer in TV. These are all functionally comedic adaptations of Star Trek or James Bond, their beloved franchises that are familiar to everyone. And they effectively tell their own original story with their own characters, even if it's clear that they're heavily, heavily based on something else. Now, if this were a drama, it could be seen as a ripoff or a copyright infringement, or at least have people question their creativity and morals, as some people did with shows like The Orville. Yeah, I really like The Orville, and it's not just because it's kind of the wannabe Star Trek, it's because they do actually explore things that you haven't really seen on TV in a while. I mean, the last episode that I saw of The Orville was kind of reminiscent of the slider Stargate style of TV, and even the original TNG version of it. And it's interesting to see if the closer they get to essentially being a serious drama instead of just being your Galaxy Quest goofy comedy take or satire on Star Trek, how much of trouble are they going to get into? I mean, at what point can they can they even merchandise their ship, for example? And I know people on Reddit, the Orville subreddit I go to occasionally, they talk about, oh, I would love to own the the Orville ship. Like, it looks beautiful. Will they be able to do that? Is that going to be some copyright right. infringement based when you're on so like, Star Trek? you're so heavily borrowing from something else 
is it enough? Have you made it enough of your own thing for it to be seen as something original again? And, but, you know, like you're saying with that whole thing, it is almost comes back to like the emotional truth of things as well. Are they staying true to the spirit of these kinds of shows and what they're doing, even if they're doing it in a funny, zany kind of way? But that's the thing is the overall, I feel like, is lessening that whole uh, zany comedy aspect. I mean, the last episode, again, only maybe had a couple of jokes in that 40-minute time frame. I can see the copyright argument with maybe TNG or something original like that. But at this point, I do wonder if they get really serialized and really serious. At what point is it just copying the other show? Right. And there's certainly been an argument that the Orville is doing Star Trek better than the new Star Trek Discovery <laughs> is doing Star Trek. Uh, sure. I mean, we can talk about it for hours <laughs> on a, a different podcast. So the other really major place you're going to be drawing IP from and adaptations are novels and other existing IP. Yeah, I mean, much like with historical adaptations, there's a lot of debate regarding adapting existing IPs and specifically books. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, we kind of live in this time of intellectual property, uh, this golden age of IP, I guess. Uh, the vast majority of TV shows getting picked up right now are either based on existing IPs like books, movies, or comics, or are remakes of past content. And on that basis alone, I think it's kind of important to look at what adapting an existing novel or IP entails on the creative level. And you're already reinterpreting the content by transforming that story on another format. You can think about how Riverdale on the CW is drastically different from the common idea of what an Archie comic is, whereas The Flash is closer to what people envision the character to be. And ultimately, the same rules as writing a compelling TV show or TV pilot still apply here, so we're not going to go over all those, but you are giving your own creative perspective on the specific existing content. And so you kind of have to mold it according to what you're trying to accomplish. Riverdale was clearly developed as a reinvention of the story for a CW type network. So it wasn't just a spec sample. So be aware of those little aspects. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting exercise to look at all of the things out there that are based off of their original properties and see how closely they stick to them, whether it's Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or maybe something like American Gods has been a really interesting adaptation of what is quite a dense 500 page book and, and the way that they're presenting it and doing that. And I think it can teach you a lot about writing and what is necessary in story. It's interesting because American Gods, to me, the, the book at least is very visual and introspective. And I think the show worked really well to recreate that effort. It wasn't as much like a narrative, like something like Game of Thrones is really, really close to the original material because of the narrative and because of the characters dying and all these arcs. But if you look at just the, the feeling of it, I feel like American Gods really, uh, if you just read the book, you can definitely envision sort of a Brian Fuller-esque show. Absolutely. Uh, just reading yeah. the material. It still feels like the show, even if it's not you know, beat by beat exactly what happened. Now, just on a side note, I often see a lot of newer screenwriters pitching scripts that they say are based off of a novel that they also wrote themselves. They're <laughs> essentially the same thing. Now, there are pros and cons to this. A lot of people will tell you to write something as a book first, and this is because you do retain a lot more of the underlying rights to a property when you write it as a novel as opposed to originating it as a screenplay or a pilot script. But it's also important to note that a lot of the reason that IP is valuable in the first place is because it's already been demonstrated to have succeeded commercially and narratively. A studio can look at a book on the New York Times bestseller list and say, A, this is an original story that obviously works, and B, we have an inbuilt audience of people who have already read and loved the book, and they're going to pay to see the show or the movie. And neither of those things are true if you just have a script that's based off of a self-published book that you wrote yourself. At that point, it's all still kind of a shot in the dark. Another reason that studios and producers like controlling an IP is that they can decide exactly how the story is executed on the screen from all the resources they have available to them, the characters, the world, the plot in, say, a series of novels. And they can bring some hotshot screenwriter or three to draft the pilot or make a movie from that. So writing a script based off of your own self-published or unpublished book may not really be as much help as you first thought. Yeah, a lot of it is about perception, right? If the executive or the network or the production company perceives the IP as something to have value, then that's one thing. But that doesn't mean that just because you pre-publish something before you pitch it as something else, it doesn't intrinsically have value in of itself. I can scroll a limerick on a napkin and say that it's IP, <laughs> but no one's going to buy it because it's not valuable. Speaking of sort of writers' involvement with their own projects, I mean, there's also a movement with TV shows right now where the original authors of all those IPs and books are present within the writers' rooms and, and within the adaptation itself. Obviously, George R. Martin and Robert Kirkman have been very involved 
and Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, respectively. And Wired actually published an article earlier this year about the involvement of Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham in the Expense Writers Room. And if you don't know who Frank and Abraham are, they both write the novels that The Expense was based on under the same pen name. So they're both the writers of the novels. And they're involved in the room. And initially, what was interesting to learn in that article is that the Shorner, Narayan Shankar, was initially kind of leery of including both writers in the room and in the process, especially to such an unprecedented extent because they were physically in the room pitching ideas and so on. It's interesting because uh, the article goes on to say that now, you know, months, years later, when Frank and Abraham step away from the writer's room, Shankar is very upset because he kind of wants those creative ideas in the room, uh, especially those people who know the world inside out, who know, especially on a sci-fi show, who know sort of the rules of the game, the very hard sci-fi elements in the show. Yeah, it's interesting. I always wonder, too, how much it affects the opposite and the vice versa of that, say, when George R.R. R. Martin, you know, he occasionally writes some of the episodes for Game of Thrones as well. He's not mm -hmm. in the room every day, but now that he's going to go back away and finish writing the novels, how much is he going to be influenced by what's happened on the TV show? in finishing his work. I think there's also a difference between what you're describing, which is Game of Thrones, in my mind, I don't believe they have a strict writer's room. They have sort of a couple of writers and then they do their own thing versus something a more linear process like a writer's room, like The Expanse. But also I know that series of unfortunate events, the Netflix show based on the books, also had the author in the room uh, originally. And the original room of the first season of unfortunate events was this very competitive environment that I heard of where people were sort of jockeying for the funniest idea or sort of one-upping each other. And then the second season, at that point, the author of the book, Daniel Handler, became an EP, right? And so he had a little bit more control with the writers and so forth. He changed the entire dynamic and invited everybody to come to his place and drink cocktails and sort of make food for them. And it was this completely different environment where amazing. exactly, I mean, where people pitch things differently. It's, a, it's, I mean, that's an entire whole discussion right there about the importance of writers rooms and, and that whole ambiance. But I found that very interesting. And so I'll link that wide article about the involvement of original authors in their TV adaptation in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you have original material, you'll often see that someone who has written a spec pilot and it gets sold and produced that they are brought into the room as a writer as the creator usually they're not an ep unless they're someone who already has precedence they might just be brought in as a staff writer or a co-ep i think is generally the credit that are given to creators even if they don't have any room experience before and it is valuable to have those people there because they had the original conception of the show in there even if it wasn't a novel or something they'd written it's still their baby in a way and they can really offer that perspective to people whether or not it's it's ip absolutely and i can still understand the tension that exists between sort of the, the person that's going to reinvent that show and adapt it for TV versus the original creator. And if the original creator understands that the novel that he or she wrote may not be exactly B for B what ends up being on TV, then I can see that relationship working. Yeah, I think you have to accept that absolutely before you go into that situation. Now, speaking of, there's also something to be said about reinventing the material. And I'm going to go back to another project that uh, I worked on, one of my spec scripts called Fifth Avenue. And one of those pilots, uh, Fifth Avenue, wasn't based on historical events, but it was kind of loosely inspired by a novel. And in fact, I approached my Fifth Avenue pilot a lot like Revenge did with The Count of Monte Cristo. In fact, it's also somewhat based off of another old-timey French novel, uh, Le Bonheur des Dames. See, Nick, uh, you got some other French accent. Hunchback and, or Notre Dame? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> different, different product. Different product. On Fifth uh, Street, being oh fabulous. <sighs> <laughs> I'm just banging my head against this mic. Uh, uh, anyway, but uh, outside of that basic concept of the original novel and some character archetypes, which I'll talk about in a second, I kind of had to start from scratch. And here's why. The original novel, which takes place at the end of the 19th century, is about this young woman from the countryside who moves to Paris and ends up working at this huge department store, which at the time was this brand new concept. Now, outside of some specific story elements, I could not really adapt one-to-one -one the novel. I was transposing the entire world to present-day New York, so there was a lot of content that just could not play for a compelling pilot since, I mean, it felt outdated and just too expository, especially if you just look at the novel, it's very introspective and so on. But what makes great story and what transcends time and what makes this world even more relevant now than ever, and that's part of the pitch if you're ever adapting something is why is something more relevant now than ever, it all boils down to character. That's what we care about. That's why we tune in to stories and TV and so on. That is my main takeaway with adapting that story, characters. And it was about understanding and taking inspiration 
from these different archetypes and character dynamics at play within the story. Not so much doing a beat-by-beat replay of what happens in the novel and the different contextual story elements, but that's the thing, is when you're adapting something, whether it's a book or a comic, an article, video game, whatever it is, remember why you're writing the story that you're writing. And you got to remember that you had to service these characters first. We've looked at the process of adapting other people's work, but what happens if you want to work in someone else's sandbox without their approval? How does that work? Ooh, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's certainly very tempting to go off and write your own, say, Star Wars character in that universe and create a pilot script based around that. After all, most of the work is already done for you and people are familiar with these elements. Why wouldn't you want to do that? But even though you may have made Darth Jimmy or whoever, who is wholly original, <laughs> you're still placing it within a copyrighted setting and perhaps featuring other copyrighted characters. And as such, it's simply never going to get made legally without the permission of those people. But also, it's just not going to get made as from a practical perspective. This is essentially fan fiction. So there are ways to tell new stories within existing familiar settings and universes. Like Take a look at Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, a play by Tom Stoppard. It's effectively a retelling of Hamlet from the perspective of two minor side characters rather than the leads. But obviously Shakespeare is public domain, so this is perfectly fine. And we can also look at the example of Fifty Shades of Grey, which originated as fan fiction of Twilight, in case you didn't know, and it went on to become incredibly successful in its own right. So if you do happen to be telling a story using existing characters, characters and worlds that you don't have the rights to, perhaps look at some ways to make those worlds and characters your own with a couple of tweaks, and voila, you now have original material. Speaking of, I mean, another aspect of adapting existing properties within that spec realm is what people call stunt specs. Now, as we just said, one of the basic rules of writing specs is to kind of never write a script around something you don't own the rights to, but some people still do it for a variety of reasons. In fact, uh, I've done it. I previously brought up my own Star Trek pilot script, Terran, which I wrote a while back. There were a couple of reasons why I did it. I mean, the main one was simply because at the time it seemed very unlikely that a new Star Trek TV show would happen in the near future. And I knew right off the bat that my script wasn't going to sell, right? It wasn't about pitching something to make it happen. It was more about pitching it for what it represents. And that is how I approached that adaptation and that stunt spec. It was more of an experiment. You know, kind of like what D Space Nine did back in the day. You know, you're creating this new show based on another property, and you can either try to repeat the formula or you can do something different with that world. And I chose to do the latter. And with my script, I was adapting the world, but not so much a specific story or character. We already have a lot of sort of this dark, gritty, Balshar Galactica-esque science fiction show. And I wanted something different that has been missing on TV since Star Trek. And while still maintaining the contemporary sensibilities and complexity of what modern serialized TV shows are like. So which had sexy teens? Yeah, always sexy teens. <laughs> I think that's the overall rule of adaptation. Always adapt sexy teens in your shows. Got it. Um, Podcast they, over. Now, sexy teens actually brings me to the other reason why I went the pilot. And as I said, I did it as an experiment, but TV is a collaborative medium. You know, we're not writing novels here. We're making episodic stories together in a writer's room, and we should be learning from each other. But besides some produced scripts and specific people like Javi and John August, there are actually very few screenwriters who are willing to openly share their work online and specifically work that isn't going anywhere. And I feel like everyone should be more open about their writing process. TV is a communal experience. It's teamwork. And that is why I shared it. And sharing is really the only context where I personally see stunt specs as being useful. You really care about the property. You really want to see or say something new about this world and you want to get it down on the page. Now on the industry side, I mean, stunt specs can be useful samples if done well, but otherwise the, the reality is that unlicensed TV pilots based on existing properties don't really go viral even practically within the internet. I mean, the only stunt specs that tend to get really popular are either weird specs of existing shows like the Seinfeld 9-11 one or feature films that are very meta and end up on the blacklist. Uh, Evan Susser and, and Van Show wrote five, six years ago this uh, feature film Chewie, which was a movie about Peter Mayhew and his work on Star Wars. Now, the feature film ended up on the blacklist and got the writers a lot of traction. They actually ended up getting studio work and doing fistfight 
uh, last year or two years ago, whenever that was. But legally speaking, though, these sound specs are kind of legal gray area between something completely original and just outright theft of IP. So you got to watch out for the balance. Yeah, as long as you are not trying to make money off of it in some way, like if you posted it up online and you required a dollar to access it, then people are going to sue you because you're trying to profit off of something that's not yours. You're legally not not allowed to put stuff out there as long as you're not profiting from it. But again, like we've been saying, there are just not that many good outcomes for it in the same way as if you'd spent that time on an original pilot, you could potentially get set up and made into a show things like that. It comes back to this idea of if you really care about the property, if you really feel that you have something new to say and that sample is going to showcase your writing ability in this specific way uh, that a new pilot potentially uh, would not be able to do, then I say go for it. I mean, I personally know a couple of friends who wrote stunt pilots based on existing, uh, I believe it was DC or Marvel characters, and they actually got meetings at CW and ABC based on those scripts. So it could happen, but the reality is Probably not, right? Like so many people wanting to write those stunt specs, they do it out of fandom, right? Essentially fan fiction. And that's completely different from writing something uh, compelling because you're not servicing the fan, you're servicing the reader and the characters and the narrative. And that's a completely different perspective. Yeah, by all means, go for it. Just to understand what you can do with it and what you can. Honestly, I think most of the time as a writer, you are likely to be working with someone else's ideas, whether that's on a TV show, you're serving the showrunner and the creator, or you're working on assignment to bring a producer's idea or some IP to life as a TV pilot or a feature. So it's important to know how to tackle that process. For me, it comes down to capturing the essence of what makes the idea or the property so intriguing, successful, or popular. Why do people love Star Trek? What are the fundamental elements you can expect in a Star Trek show? What are nerds going to be yelling at you about on the internet for not doing if you mess this up? Then finding a way to blend that with why it's being done again. What is it about this current incarnation of it that makes it timely, relevant, and necessary? You know, what is the new spin or angle that you can put on a much-loved and known property that's going to make it feel fresh and new and unique without jeopardizing the elements that people expect and love? You don't just want it to be a soulless cash grab like so many of the TV shows that have been made off of old 80s action movie IP cashing in on a name brand, but then barely resembling what made people actually love that IP in the first place. Look at the recent The Mummy movie. Obviously, there was a classic black and white mummy back in the day, but if you compare the Brendan Fraser mummy to the Tom Cruise mummy, you're seeing where they went wrong. You can't just take X and add gritty reboot and expect success. Some things don't need or want to be rebooted, so you need to really find a clear why now to go along with your why this. Like that recent Tarzan movie, I remember seeing the billboard on Sunset and just yelling, no one asked for this. Like, why is this coming back? All of it comes down to sort of the essence, as you said, the sort of like why here, why now, and also how it differentiates itself from the other things on screen. Where we, we talk about Star Trek. I mean, one of the big criticism about Star Trek Discovery is that it's kind of a yet another gritty, dark uh, science fiction show. And maybe 15 years ago, that would have been, you know, brand new and unexpected. But years after Ballastar Galactica and The Expense and all those like dark and gritty shows on TV, I mean, maybe we need something different. And that's why people are embracing the Orville in, in, in some ways, because it's sort of embracing that positivity that people need on TV right now. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes you do have to take risks with that why now element. I personally much preferred the hit or miss nature of Rogue One to what I saw as the bland safety of Force Awakens, which you know to me was basically a shot for shot remake of A New Hope. Rogue One still felt like Star Wars to me, but they were doing something new and interesting, seeing a different side of the rebellion, challenging the morals of this universe. It's a fine line to walk. You can easily go wrong. There are definitely parts of it that didn't work. But to me, nothing says kind of creative cowardice than just doing the same old thing over again because you can, bringing it back exactly as it was before because you know you're going to make a billion dollars without trying. J.J. <laughs> Abrams, creative coward. Is that what <laughs> New you're enemy of the podcast. Oh, Let's boy. put him on there with Robert oh, McKee and uh, <laughs> Whoever Aaron Sorkin. Else. I definitely agree with, with your Rogue One assessment. I, I'm 100% on board with what you're saying in terms of uh, preferring someone taking chances on a different project, a different perspective. And in fact, I mean, that's kind of what I both enjoyed and disliked about Blade Runner 2049 is uh, on some level, it was very similar to the original. And I love those elements of visually was stunning. You know, the actors were great. And then the story overall was really strong. But then there were some elements that they changed for the benefit or what they thought was for the benefit of the modern audience. So for example, and this is a big spoiler if you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, but there's a point where K. Ryan Gosling's character transfers his hologram girlfriend into a stick. 
And there's a line that she says, which I'm paraphrasing here, but it's essentially something akin to, uh, if you transfer me into the stick and someone destroys this stick, I'm going to really die. That's what's going to happen. And it's essentially a blinking red light that says, oh, in the third act, someone is going to step on the stick and destroy that character. And that's something that was lost from the original, I feel like, is this whole idea of uh, force ex exposition, I thought, where you had to sort of explain the rules of the world and the rules of the game. And I, I really miss that ambiguity of uh, the original Blade Runner. Now, with all that said, obviously, I know that there's been like five different versions of the original Blade Runner and the original Blade Runner had a forced uh, voiceover by Harrison Ford and all those elements. But I'm really talking about the the sort of the, the director's statement, right, with the final cut of Blade Runner versus what we had in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I really felt that the the world was so incredibly immersive and interesting. And sometimes it's okay just to let people be confused a little bit and, and live in that. Let's just let people be confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's the takeaway from this podcast. <laughs> what are the takeaways from this episode? Number one, understand what it is you can adapt from and to and the difference between adaptation and inspiration. Number two, do your research, but don't become paralyzed by it. Number three, pick out only the elements of the material that are relevant to the story. Don't be a slave to precise accuracy, whether to history or to a book, etc. It is impossible to be truly objective in storytelling. Number four, if you're going to adapt something familiar, ensure that you retain the things about it that people love, while also making it feel fresh and timely. Know why this needs to be adapted now. How about some resources for the listeners? Well, I have a couple this week. One is this academic essay that I was recommended by someone on Reddit of all places. It's called The Dialogics of Adaptation by Robert Stem. It's about 30 pages and honestly, it's kind of a heavy read, but it is a compelling analysis of what an adaptation really is, not just on a semantic level, but also creatively. And he actually takes a look at a lot of movies like Dr. Strangelove, Lolita, The Naughty Professor, Citizen Kane, and learn a lot more. And I will link the PDF in the show notes for your enjoyment. Could have uh, read that before this podcast, and I would have had a lot more to say. <laughs> you were honestly, you would have probably fell asleep. There were there's some really interesting elements. It's a heavy read. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Cool. Uh, I'm kind of like a nerd, as a Homer Simpson would say. So I enjoy <laughs> that kind of stuff. And now the other resource, if you're more uh, visually inclined, which I feel like would be most of those people in this podcast, is a 40 minute interview with one of my favorite screenwriters working right now, Eric Heiser who adapted the story of your life short story into a little feature film you may have heard of called Rival. And the original screenplay of Rival, not the original as in uh, original idea, but the first version of the story of your life adaptation is still one of the best scripts I've ever read. And Eric actually talks about his process about adapting other properties in that interview. So I will link that in the show notes. Yeah, I think Eric actually has a, an interview. It might have been the Nerdist podcast or... One of those ones, Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith, he talks a lot about how he used to write a lot of short stories and some horror short stories online and adapting those into those feature projects. And that's kind of how he came up and got to this point. So it's really interesting as well. Basically, just listen to everything he's ever said, though, ever. <laughs> yes. Just follow him around and listen <laughs> to things that he says. That's not creepy at all. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the episode. So thanks, everyone, for taking the time to listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 65. And in a few weeks, you'll be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 65 transcript, all one word. Please give us reviews. <laughs> Please give us reviews right now. We are desperate. We would love if you could just take a couple of minutes to sit there and give us a review. You can be honest, but we would love to hear your thoughts. Isn't that how dating works? The more desperate you are, the, the faster you're going to find out. Oh, yeah. We're going to be surrounded by uh, sexy reviews. And that's going to be at paperteam.co slash iTunes. Thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. And our Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout and save $15 off their entry to that competition. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. Save yourself some money. Uh, as always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, uh, IPs you want to pitch. I immediately regret saying that because now we're going to receive a ton of uh, <laughs> pitches. Uh, you can uh, send those at ask at paperteam.co. <laughs> what are we doing next week, Nick? Next week, we're going to be looking at censorship and what happens when you can't say what you want to say. Like, <laughs> <laughs> see you next week. See you next week. Uh,